Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Elkhorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. So this week on Ivy League Murders, we traveled to Scarsdale, New York. So we decided to focus on a case that bears that same name, the famous Scarsdale Diet. So as our listeners know, we like to keep it a little interesting, take it on the road, and go on location for our cases. And we are. We're in beautiful, luxurious Scarsdale, New York, which is really a very green, gorgeous, affluent community. And basically a suburb to Manhattan in some ways. It's very, very close. Very close. And um, we brought three 13-year-old girls with us this time. And the girls got to ride around in a go-kart. A golf cart. A golf cart. And they had such a blast. It was really funny. They did. We, we like to make it as challenging as possible here on our, our adventures. And we're going to make it even more interesting later today. And we're going to venture out to Sleepy Hollow. It got real creepy. We are. And we're actually listening to Washington Irving's Sleepy Hollow as we go. Yes. So the girls, of course, are on TikTok and have absolutely no right, desire but... to listen. But I'm trying to inundate them with some literature, But too. Sarah and I, we like to really, really immerse ourselves in these cases. And it's really pretty fascinating when you actually go to the places where they occurred and almost really kind of walk in the footsteps of the people who experienced these crimes. Absolutely. So this episode, we're covering an Ivy League sister school, Smith College. This is a true crime podcast in which we cover violent death, so listener caution is advised. In 1980, jilted ex-girlfriend Jean Harris traveled five hours in the middle of the night to Herman Tarnower's estate in Purchase, New York. She had a loaded 32 caliber with her, jacked up on 17 different drugs, mostly amphetamines that she was trying to detox from. Harris intended to confront Tarnower about his new girlfriend, Lynn Trifolis. When Harris entered Tarnower's bedroom, she noticed Trifolis's lingerie in the bathroom. Jean, you're crazy, Tarnower shouted, and according to Harris, a struggle over the gun ensued. She shot Tarnower four times with a fatal shot to the chest. This is the story of the Scarsdale diet and a woman who was starving for love. As always on Ivy League Murders, we like to talk a bit about the institution, which is Smith College in this case. So in the bucolic Berkshires of Massachusetts, Smith College was founded in 1875 by Sophia Smith. After inheriting a large fortune from her father at the age of 65, Smith decided to form a woman's college. This was to provide an education for women on par with the education afforded to men at that time. Smith is one of seven sister schools to the Ivy League. Formed in 1927, the sisters are a consortium of colleges prior to the Ivy League accepting women. 
So what are what are some fun facts about Smith? Wonder Woman went to Smith. Yes, the this is a fictional character. I thought that was very fun, but she did go to she Smith. She did go to Smith. Smith has the oldest female a cappella group called Smith and Poofs. Smith and Poofs, <laughs> which is it reminds me of Andy from the office with Here Comes Trouble. And there is actually I mean the list of noted alumni is too long to even even go through, but we can just to, just to start with a few um Noted feminists Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan, Margaret Mitchell, who wrote Gone with the Wind, First Ladies Nancy Reagan and Barbara Bush, Julia Child, and Sarah, why don't you tell us what they do for Julia Child? Okay, this is fun fact about Smith College here. So they have a Julia Child Day, and so you go from dining hall to dining hall sampling delicious food. And speaking of food, I have to tell you that I went on the Scarsdale diet. It was super popular to be stick thin back when we grew up. And so, of course, in trying to achieve this, I went on the Scarsdale diet. And it is the most like draconian diet. You can have like one piece of tiny toast, yeah. a cup of black coffee, and like and a half of a grapefruit. And I remember just, oh my God, Laura, I was so sad being on this diet. I actually have a, a sample of what you can eat in a diet one day. I mean, of course you'll lose weight. So you can have one half grapefruit for breakfast, one slice of protein bread with no spread and coffee or tea, no sugar, cream or milk. For lunch, you can have some cold cuts, some broiled tomatoes. Oh, no. And coffee, tea, or diet soda or water. Bring it on. And for dinner, you can have fish or shellfish. And you can have some salad with no dressing, <laughs> one slice of bread, and a grapefruit, and coffee, tea, and diet soda. It, right. And I it's remember... It's really kind of a starvation I, diet. I remember those little pieces of toast. Where I remember they were 40 calories a piece. I mean, this was... Like, I think people were, like, starving to death on the Scarsdale diet. Yeah. I really do. And then I lived on Tab, which was basically the Diet Coke of the time. And it was... <laughs> those oh, pink God. cans. Yeah. Anything to be skinnier, though. That's how we felt. And... Know? Right. So let's... We'll get ahead of ourselves a little. So let's, um, let's backtrack a little and talk about about Jean Harris and so Jean Harris was born in 1923 in Ohio actually and she grew up in Ohio and went to a private high school. Which one? She went to Laurel School. She went to the Laurel All Girls School. And then she went to Smith College. And in 1945, she graduated from Smith Magna Cum Laude with a degree in economics. You know, Jean had come from a privileged background. And like many women at the time, she, you know, she went to college and married immediately after. And she married Jim Harris, who her family thought was kind of a loafer, not too motivated. And her dad actually cried not tears of joy sarah but tears of sadness at the wedding but like loud loud crying at the wedding i hope i never marry somebody like that where my father is openly weeping, weeping yeah. at my wedding <laughs> And then the Harris's settled in, so I'm not sure how much of a slacker he was since they moved to Gross Point, which is actually the wealthiest suburb in all of Michigan. And very waspy. Very waspy. And by 1952, they had had two sons, David and Jimmy. And Jean became a teacher, but she eventually, when she had her children, had given that up. And, and she sort of opened a daycare. Right, within the well, house. I mean, I think we have to just 
stop for a second and I think Jean was a very intelligent Very woman. intelligent. Very intelligent. And I think she was kind of really dying inside in the suburbs. So totally like withering on the yeah. vine, I think. Yeah, know? she really needed she really needed more. So, uh, you know, the, the marriage was kind of slowly, you know, dying over many years. But eventually she does divorce Jim and she moves to Philly. She gets custody of her sons and she works at the prestigious Springside Chestnut Hill Girls Academy, which has a tuition of $37,000 a year. So. And that was 1965. Right, 1965. And, and leaves Jim, you know. She leaves she Jim. is bored. She's I think bored she's just, and she, yeah, she wants a career and she wants, I think, to be in a bigger city, out of the suburbs, and a bigger life. Jean meets Madge Jacobson. Madge, I love the name Madge. I know, it's and great. And no one's named Madge anymore. Madge was a socialite. She was living a glamorous life on Park Avenue, and she also had a weekend house in Scarsdale. She was married to a Jewish doctor, and it was sort of everything I think Jean aspired to. They were kind of worldly and cultured and went to parties with interesting conversation, very wealthy people. So at one of these, Jean meets Dr. Herman Tarnar. So can you tell me a little bit about Tarnauer? Well, Herman Tarnauer, or High, as he was called, that's, we can probably refer to him as High from this point on, was born um, in Manhattan to, or in the Bronx, actually, to Jewish immigrant parents. You know, he really came from nothing. And all he really ever wanted was to assimilate. And he was very, very intelligent. And he went to Syracuse University, and he actually finished his undergrad in two years, Sarah. He was a smarty. Yeah. You gotta get him that, for sure. I think it yeah. took me five years and three summers to intercept sessions at Christmas. Okay. He did that and then he got his medical degree from Syracuse as well. And he worked briefly in Manhattan and then he opened a private practice in Scarsdale. And he really was all about wealth and power and it was really his ultimate goal was to achieve these things was status he joined the elite century golf club he really craved social acceptance and you might he he was a cardiologist i think he was and i think he really catered to his clientele was very elite he would make house calls he would kind of do anything for the wealthy he just really catered to them and um we actually have the rare personal story about Herman Tarnauer making one of these house calls. That's right. I'm privileged to be friends with Ronald Winston. And Ronald is Harry Winston's son. And so Harry Winston's widow, Edna, was ill for a very, very long time and bedridden. So Herman Tarnauer treated Edna Winston. So we'll let Ron tell you in his own words his personal experience with Herman Tarnauer. Okay, we have the honor and pleasure of sitting here with Ron Winston. Ron is Harry Winston's son. He also happens to have a beautiful estate in Westchester, and he had some personal experience with Herman Tarnauer, who was his mother's physician. And Ron, would you like to perhaps tell us a little bit about your experience with Herman? We're trying to kind of get a full picture of who he was as a man and as a physician. Well, unfortunately, my mother spent 18 years of her life uh, desperately ill. She had been paralyzed because of an injury and was bedridden and mute. And I needed a doctor to come to her home to make a house call, which, of course, is hardly ever done now, but back in those days... It was a fairly regular procedure. And one day my mother got an infection 
and he came over and saw her and prescribed an antibiotic. And I asked him, I had the temerity to ask him, had he done a culture and sensitivity test on the active infection that my mother had? And he said... And, and can I just stop yes, you please. for a moment? You are also a scientist and a chemist in your own right. Yes. Yes. Who's worked, where so has I worked at MIT. I could do medical knowledge and scientific knowledge. And I asked him about this test. And he said, and I remember it was, I think it was on the phone. And I then realized that he wasn't very philanthropic or simpatico man. He was a nasty piece of work. And because he said to me, let me tell you something. You're the patient's family. I'm the patient's doctor. You don't ask questions like that. Do you understand me? I said, well, oh. yes, I, I do, doctor. He said, because if you do again, I'm never coming back to take care of your mother. I <gasps> oh, the hubris. And she was really desperately ill. She was helpless. It was, a, it was a mean piece of work, but it was just an exhibition of his incredibly nasty ego that interfered with the loving, kind care that patients need. Not, not he a... didn't exhibit any of that. So I, after that, I understood later why his girlfriend, Jean Harris, who's a very Ivy League kind of lady herself, murdered him. She got so furious. I, I don't know what the issue was, but he was undoubtedly capable of being very nasty in a domestic relationship as well, I am sure. Do you, what year was it that he treated your mother? Do you remember? What year was Did he visit her? In in any general way, do you know? I would say that was probably 1965. Okay. Your mother was Edna Winston. My mother was Edna. Mm -hmm. So that's when he had his practice in Scarsdale. Does that jive? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. Yep. He had when his... was he murdered? 1980, yeah. We had read that he had also treated a lot of very high-end patients, and, you know, that was kind of his clientele. He was quite a social climber. He was, yeah, he was, he had a real thirst for power and... I'm going to redate that. It was probably 75. Okay. 75, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting personal story on Herman Tarnow. Absolutely. An insight into who he was as a physician. Well, from that time on, I really disliked the man intensely. Well, it's understandable. Yeah, and well, it's not the... Kind of, kind of goes along with some other things we've heard about him, and we don't want to vilify the victim here, but we just wanted to get a sense of maybe who he was as a physician. As a physician, I, I, I can't imagine having your mother in this vulnerable position and then being kind of yelled at for asking a question. I, I can't I mean, imagine a more vulnerable position. It's just terrible. And I really thank you, Ron, for sharing that really personal story with us. Absolutely. Always an honor. For oh, yes. <laughs> the Ron Winston edition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, darling. Thank you. I guess despite his horrible bedside manner, according to Ron, Gene uh, uh, Harris meets Herman Tarnauer at a party, and they're both smitten with each other. Oh, yeah. And she's, I mean, she's significantly younger than him. But, yeah, she's just, I mean, she's just enamored by him. And, you know, he is by her at, at first as well. And he kind of wines and dines her. And, you know, she's never really experienced anyone like him before. And he, he's very charismatic. And I guess he was pretty much like a womanizer all of his life. He and, was. And, and he, that only got worse and worse as his fame increased, I think. Oh, definitely. And he's sending her notes and sending 
her gifts and taking her on trips. And, you know, she... Who wouldn't fall for that? I know. <laughs> and and she actually kind of respects his um, status, power-hungry, you know. They're, they're both ambitious. Ambitious. Yeah. I think she, she respects you know, the fact that he is, he, right, he's so ambitious. I think they're both kind of, like, hard, though, too. They're both kind of, you know, that they're not warm, cuddly people, no. you know. And actually, in 1967, he gives her um, a very large engagement ring, and she's just thrilled. And she accepts, of course, and but says she doesn't really want to get married for a year. She wants her sons to finish high school. And then a few months later... You know, she's kind of pushing them for a wedding date, and he changes his mind. Mm. Um, you know, he's he's definitely really not quite a, you know, a committer. But, you know, as will become the pattern, you know, she kind of forgives him for anything he does, and she kind of sucks up to him. She doesn't want to be seen as needy. She kind she of takes anything he'll, he'll give. I think she really does kind of try to play, like, the—she's kind of accepts unacceptable behavior, it seems to me. She does. And around this time, she, she goes and takes a jo- another job in Connecticut at another private school, and she hurts her back, and she starts to have some pain. And this is kind of when the drug use prescription— you starts because Herman or High um, prescribes her painkillers for her back. And this will start a cycle of prescription drug use that is going to continue. Major addiction. Major I mean, we're addiction. We're talking like 17 different kinds of drugs. Some, At different times. Some are contraindicated, by the way. Right. It's not, she should not have been on this cocktail of drugs. I mean. No, and I think it starts with, with painkillers, but what really she really gets hooked on her amphetamines and I mean basically what she was taking um was like dioxin which was like meth so she I mean she was taking uppers to be up all day and then pills to go to sleep and I mean she was just on this constant cocktail I, I haven't thought about this but think about this too they're developing and I think we will get into their development of the Scarsdale diet she actually had quite a lot to do with the writing of that book and um it but I but think about it too she's probably taking them to stay super skinny as well I mean what's the best way to lose weight you, you stay on speed well I right? think that's probably part of the Scarsdale diet I mean it's the most I fun mean, way you can't to eat. Do <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so she she you know she she goes to this job in Connecticut and um you know and also around this time High hires a new secretary named uh Lynn and, you know, that's Lynn Trifolis. Right. And, you know, there starts to be some suspect of whether he's having a relationship with her. And And, and mind you, he's been open about having other relationships with other women. And and Jean didn't mm -hmm. seem to mind it. She just wanted to be Queen Bee basically yeah so, I, so, I, so lynn travolis is like a new that's a new chapter of like this this woman is really mm-hmm. sort of like the other woman the other girlfriend yeah i'm not sure that the relationships prior really uh, you know took any type of precedent in his life and now lynn is kind of moving in on on jean's territory territory she's traveling with him right. she's being she's on his arm well was, I, and we you get the feeling that he's sort of phasing lynn in and phasing you know gene out that's the 
you know, and so, and it, it is. And I mean, no, I think that that's kind of exactly what is happening. And I mean, it, you know, it gets very, very petty. Jean's getting hang up calls. She thinks it's Lynn. They, you know, like kind of a phone war ensues. High's kind of, in a sense, almost encouraging this. Oh, he kind I mean, of likes but, the women fighting over I him. I think we have to go into some of those messages because they are nasty, nasty, nasty on both sides. I mean, the, there's a war going on between Lynn and Jean for for uh, for high for Tarnower and he loves this. I mean, I think he he loves the attention. He loves the you know he he loves the drama. And oh my gosh, this is just his dream come true to be sought after by these two women. Oh, and it's just it amazes me because I mean she she's really Jean Harris is really this extremely intelligent, sophisticated, classy woman, and then you know she's on the phone calling this other woman like a stupid whore, right? And, I and, mean, and then and then the other woman is calling her an old bitch and giving yeah, her very I mean, explicit sexual details about right about right. about you know Lynn is giving uh, Jean very explicit uh-huh. sexual details about you know about have her sex with high yeah basically. i mean it's just it's just very very petty did you did you notice though i i think this is so i, I got chills when i heard this laura so apparently and this is secondhand because i did not read the book directly but apparently um Tarnauer was in morocco in a taxi cab and he was just chit-chatting with the with the driver and um and the driver was bemoaning the fact that he only had two wives laura and and Tarnauer kind of asked the taxi driver he said what do you need two wives for and the guy said well because it makes them both work harder you know so i'm my question is i don't know if if you want relationship advice i'm not sure i'd want to go to a taxi cab driver you know in morocco but what you know hey whatever you, you never know. know yeah so in 1977 kind of in the midst of all this um jean takes a, a very high profile job as the headmistress of the madeira school in dc and now this is a really big job sarah this it is. is a really prestigious well, girl school i mean in, we're talking in, like you know sixty eight thousand dollar a year tuition a year. and these are i I mean, oh, you think about these parents. They're, they're politicos in, in Washington. I, watch. I mean, these are like Very, players. Is, yeah, these absolute are. Absolute players, yeah. And so these, these are the, the children, because it's all girls, right, Madeira? It's all girls. So and... these are the daughters of the, like, mm-hmm. upper, upper of Washington. Tennessee. Right. And, you know, she's not really, you know, she had previously been really successful in all of her career endeavors. But she's, you know, and I I. I, I think it's the drugs. I mean, she kind of isn't is very well respected. She's too strict. She's a little erratic, which obviously to me, it's the pills. And she really isn't making the best impression at Madeira. She's going downhill. Jean is really... Her life's is going Yeah, but down. I mean, I, I put some of the responsibility on Tarnauer. I mean, if you... Well, he's her. Are, he's basically I her dealer. He, I think he, he, you know, it's awful to be with somebody who is not committing to you and is stringing you along and kind of gaslighting you. And that, with a huge pill addiction, of course she's losing her marbles. And I'm not putting... A lack of responsibility on Jean Harris. I think that's just the freaking reality of what was happening for her. And in 1979, in 1978, actually, Jean buys a gun for protection. And, you know, or some people think that she bought it because she was suicidal, but she does purchase a weapon at that time and ammunition. But also what's happening in around that time, 
right? Tarnauer, who was already rich and, and already successful, the Scarsdale diet. So the Scarsdale diet is going to come out in 1979. Right. So that's going to be right. So she, she buys a gun in 78 in the following year. Now she also, let's, let's add, she, she basically helped write that book right. and she is not, she's acknowledged inside like, thanks Jane, but she's not like in the, in, in the, the, like, thanks to everybody. And right, Jane, but know. she's not listed as an author, and uh, which was very disrespectful since she really did help write the book. And that was like another slap in the face to her. And, and he becomes kind of like what people today would recognize as like Dr. Oz. That's right. And he, so he's already rich and he becomes famous to the point of, you know, he's on TV shows. He's on Good Morning like America. He's doing like Dr. Everybody. Mark Griffin. Yeah. He's doing that. Yeah. And then he actually sends her a $4,000 check um, and it, for her contributions to the book, which yeah. she takes as actually as a huge insult. Because, you know, she loves him and she sees this as this like project they did together. So to receive this payment for it, it just is very, very disrespectful to her. So it's like everything is kind of falling apart at once. He is pushing him her out of his life. He is starting to travel with Lynn and she's really feels replaced by Lynn who, you know, by now Jean's in her early fifties. Lynn is I think 35. So, you know, there's definitely, it's a bit of like a Betty Broderick, if anyone is familiar with, for you true crime junkies out there, you know, it's kind of a Betty Broderick, you know, she's replaced by the newer model basically. And then, you know, as things continue to, to escalate, um, Jean, who was already known to be too strict, too uptight, catches some some girl. Now we're talking the seventies here. Mm-hmm. She catches some girls smoking marijuana at school, and she expels them. Now this does not go over well. You know, no, with the, a ho- with a hoi polloi of Washington. No, the, know, how dare she? This is con- considered too severe. I mean, it's the seventies. People are smoking it, marijuana. It, it's also so hypocritical. I mean, she's a massive pill for right. You know, but we and, know, we know yeah. people make a big distinction even today between what's prescribed and what's illegal. And, you know, that obviously is what she was doing. And the students kind of rebel against this and they have a they have a sit in. They have a protest against her. And the board eventually meets and decides that they're going to dismiss her. So it's like everything. It's like she's losing high. She's losing her job, which is really her identity. And she's always been, I mean, look, she graduated with honors from Smith. She's always been successful. She's, she's kind of losing everything. And just at this time, high's pushing her out and her prescriptions start to run out. And she can't reach him. And he, and he won't refill them, which is actually like sort of medically dangerous. You can't just have go on an enormous amount of pain pills and then just be cut off. Basically. Right. And like speed. I mean, she's on speed. Oh, speed and right. yeah, I mean, she's so she's basically starts withdrawing and he's she's like frantically calling him and frantically calling him and she's he can't reach him. So she's withdrawing for like three days. And at during this time, she writes out a will. Right. And she writes him a 12 page letter. And she writes him a 12 page letter, which she mails to him. Which is just like this really pathetic. It's just rambling, rambling. About, you know, yeah, you know, how you know she loves him, um, and he's know. hurt her. I mean, just I mean, I mean, just the letter any of us would write if we were extremely inebriated and hurt. But you probably wouldn't mail it, but she does mail it. 
and restraint of pen and tongue. Yeah. That's what I would say. So finally, on Monday, March 10th, 1980, she does read reach him, and she actually begs him not to read the letter. Right. Which hasn't reached him yet. And she asks if she could come over and, you know, she kind of, you know, she kind of pushes this and eventually he says, fine, come over. But, and she goes about, and I'm not sure if he even knows she's going to come, you know, it's just I don't know. I don't think he said, fine, come over. I think he like blows her off. He really tries to put, put her off. Put her off, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I guess I've heard contradictory things, but she, she's begging to come over, and so he. I guess perhaps he does blow her off, but you yeah, kind of like not now, Jean. Right. You know, kind of placates her. Mm-hmm. I think that's the impression that I. Yeah. Get, anyway, and so anyway, she's trying to reach him. She goes. She drives five hours to go over there, and yep. and she brings the gun. Right, and it's about ten thirty at night when she gets there. When she gets there, and she he's asleep. Uh huh. And he wakes up, and what happens then? Well, I mean, he he's what we really. I mean, we we know, and we don't know. We know from what she says happened, but I I'm not sure. I believe what she said happened. We do know that he yells out. What does he yell out, Sarah? No, Jean, you're crazy. And he, uh, several times. Too. Several times, and the housekeeper hears him before she hears shots. And we know he shot four times with the fatal wound being to the chest. Now, she says that she went there to kill herself. and In front of him. In front of him. And like, that... It's like, to, like, say goodbye to him and kill herself in front of him. Right, and then as she's going to kill herself, there's a struggle for the gun, and the gun goes off, and I guess there are some signs of a struggle for the gun, but... I, I mean, to me, that doesn't make a ton of sense. Four shots. What do you think? And with the shots are... Remind me where they are. One is in the hand... Right? One is in the leg, one is in the chest. And one is in the arm. That's right. Yeah. And it's been said before, and I'll say it again, I think the four shots really are indicative of it. What it, two shots I could see. They're struggling for the gun and bam, bam. You know, four shots to me is like, hmm, you know, that, you know, who had the upper hand in that struggle, you know, first of all. I mean, look, the other thing I read, too, is that, the you know one of the the shot that goes that's from his hand matched a shot that was in his chest so that is a defensive move you're making with your hand right so it means that perhaps the bullet went mm-hmm. through his hand and into his chest you're you're trying to fend off which would connote a certain amount of distance between them too it's not you're it, when you're struggling for a gun you're up close you're you're struggling like that i you know honestly I don't know if she, what her intentions were going up there, but I think she, you know, I think she definitely shot him, you know, and, and I'm not sure about a struggle. I'm not sure she even knew her intentions going up there. I think when you're that confused, confused and, and yeah. right, I think that you can't even probably make, create a straight thought when you're that, you know, out of it on, you know, drugs or coming off drugs or who knows what she was thinking. But, uh, then, I, you know, apparently she said she was going to shoot herself, but the gun wouldn't go off. But and then she, she didn't know how to reload it. Reload it. I mean, it, it, it's all. And then she. But, but you know what we're missing here, and we did mention it before. I think one of the one of the real triggers for for Jean, and this is 
this is so, so hard with, you know, she goes into, I guess there was some bathroom that was adjacent to their bedroom and she sees um, Lynn Trafolis's either like lingerie or like a negligee or a nighty of some sort. She sees this other woman's possessions. And that I think is the, th- the absolute trigger that pushes her yeah. over the edge. Yeah. So she basically leaves him there and gets in her car and because she says the phone wasn't working and drives off to get help. You could, a pay phone. There, this was obviously all pre-cell phone. Pre-cell phone. And as she, which, you know, unknown to her, the, the housekeeper had already called the police. So as she's driving off, she sees the police. And on she their, turns around and follows them back to the house. Right. And they're just like shocked that this you know, it was raining out and then this like rain soaked woman, this kind of like older woman. She just, looks very dignified. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't look like, you know. And just kind of gets out of the car and says, you know, I did it. I shot him. And she's arrested. That's right. And so this takes us to, you know, what, you know, becomes like a media Oh, it is frenzy. A, it's a frenzy because he mm. is so famous because of the Scarsdale diet. And we, we do have to mention, like, Scarsdale diet was a bestseller. It was flying off the shelves. I don't think anybody didn't have a bloody copy of that book. Well, it's in like their Atkins house. or Keto Today or, I mean, I remember, I mean, I used to spend a lot of time in New Rochelle in college because I had a boyfriend in college who from New Rochelle. And I actually remember even in college asking to be to go to Scarsdale so I could see the place of the Scarsdale oh diet God, murder. Oh, well, here you are. And so the public's reaction is really mixed across the board. Very mixed, very mixed. About Jean Harris. I mean, I think... Well, you know, and I mean, actually, you know, in in kind of similar form to, to Betty Broderick, which always shocks me, you know, a lot of women are sympathetic to Jean Harris because a lot of women have been thrown over by a younger woman. And it's kind of, we call it like the Broderick effect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and know? a lot of women have been, right, have been, feel like they've been replaced by younger women. A lot of women have, uh, you know, felt jilted have felt a lot of the emotions that Jean Harris felt and um I don't want to feel although I'd have to say she doesn't cut a very sympathetic figure for the press at this point she shows up in minx she's you know they the I think one of the headlines was you know the the headmistress and the murderess or something like that like no oh no the murder shows up in mink that was one of the headlines. Right. You know? And I mean, I don't want to vilify the victim. I, I don't like doing that. I didn't, he didn't deserve to die. But, you know, he, you know, and, and as we've, you know, shared here with, you know, Ron has shared and as other things I've read, he, he wasn't the most beloved character. I think he was pretty cruel. Yeah. I, like. I, I think it sounds like he did not have any. He was like, I, I, this is always my expression about men like this. They love women. But they don't like women. Yeah, I don't think that he particularly, you know, I don't think he had any bedside manner. And I don't think he was a particularly nice man to be around. So I I think that that, now, did he deserve to die? Absolutely not. Did she have any right to do this to him? Absolutely not. Um, But I think that this did, you know, it resonated with with people. And, um, you know, not with me. I'm not super sympathetic to Jean Harris. But I I do think that, you know, I, I, I understand. I'm not sympathetic to Betty Broderick either, but 
I, you know, I'm kind of a much more about take a hard line on that. I know you're more sympathetic I'm, than I am. I'm not sympathetic to anyone who would commit murder. Right. I, I just don't. I In, in both, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to stick to Gene Harris in, you know, in Gene Harris to me is tragic because, you know, at anybody's, you know, in, in anybody's lives, they make these choices where the, the, the branch can go off to the good or the branch can mm-hmm. go off to the bad. It's I love that there's a there's a Buddhist thing, it's quite a side, but it's like you know, what you have two dogs, one is very vicious, one is very kind, you know, which one grows bigger, the one you feed. And I think if you spend your, you know, she was devolving, you know, her own, you're responsible for your own life. If you're on pills, get off pills. If you're in a toxic relationship, get the hell out. Right. You know, so a part of me does feel like, yeah, she was uh, sort of a victim here too. I don't think he was a very nice man. But you take responsibility for your own life and get the hell out. Of right. And he did kind of create the monster with the pills. I mean, I do think yeah, he kind he, of contracted. Right. She took them. Yeah. yeah. She nobody, took forces, him, nobody forced her. But, he but down her throat. Right. Yeah. But he did kind of, you know, contribute into that addiction, into feeding that addiction. But think about that. If Jean Harris, somebody like Jean Harris had, you know, gotten sober and had, she was an attractive woman. She was very intelligent. Sure. She was very well connected. She had money you know she she had all the things that all the good materials but she was just you know her life you know because of this toxic relationship and the pills was just not going in good directions at all right and she hires a lawyer Mm -hmm. and um who does she hire sarah she hires joel arno whose name i can never pronounce and um, Joel actually encourages her and the pros and DA. Um, so the DA, um, George Bolin, actually is is amenable to a plea of manslaughter, which would have, I mean, I think that um, her attorney encourages. But she, she will not do it. She won't do it. She yeah. wants to take the stand. She wants to tell her side of the story. I'm and sure she's wildly detoxing at this point. Yeah. yeah. And maybe even in, still on some meds. And mm-hmm. um, they don't usually just take you off cold turkey. And against her own attorney, attorney's advice she takes the stand and she tells this story which is a little nonsensical in my opinion about the struggle with the gun and you know going there to kill herself but bringing extra ammunition I mean if, if you're gonna go kill yourself why do you need extra bullets and you know four shots too four I mean, shots on, and you know. I mean it, it it doesn't make a ton of sense and she the letter she wrote to him is you know which he never received um while he was alive he he actually we didn't mention did die on the way to the hospital but they did get the letter and they read it they read it to her horror they read it out loud right all things that could have been avoided if she had taken the plea and she's found guilty of second degree murder and uh, and she goes to you know she gets fifteen years and she goes and she goes to prison. Laura, do you remember where she was sentenced to? Yes, actually, she went to Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in Westchester County, and she actually was given fifteen. I said fifteen. It was fifteen to life was her actual sentence, and she um, she actually kind of redeemed herself in prison. I mean, she did amazing things. Um, I think she, it, she had a real hard time first adapting to prison life she there's a sort of the the she writes a couple of books her first book is about her struggles adapting to prison and just about the prison system in general yes it's called she wrote in 86 it's called stranger in two worlds and then she she writes a second book 
um, in 88 called They Always Call Us Ladies, which is really isn't about her. It's really um, it's the stories of the women she meets in prison. And she becomes a real pre- women's prison advocate and for reform. For reform. She she becomes an educator in prison. She helps open a daycare. Um, and, and she kind of becomes like a mom to these other younger, kind of more lost inmates, I think. Yes. Yeah, so she really winds up, uh, you know, doing a lot of good, becoming an ideal prisoner. She does a lot of good uh, rights. She continues <laughs> to do. So she really, she does a lot of, you know, she does, she does a lot of, you know, she does really kind of redeem herself in prison. And after 11 years, Governor Mario Cuomo commutes the, remi- the remainder of her sentence. Um, she was going to have quadruple bypass surgery at that time. But I think due to all of her good deeds and and, you know, she really was a high profile person and, and she had a lot of, you know, Joan Rivers, Barbara Walters, all big advocates of hers. And uh, so she she was paroled and she, you know, she went and she lived um, in Connecticut and yeah. she kind of and she it, I love that she lived until she was 89. She died in 2012. She did. She lived till 89. <laughs> she her sons, David and Jimmy, um, you know, she, she stayed close to she Aww. lived like a. She lived like a quiet life gardening in Connecticut. Because, you know, in thinking about her two boys, I mean, this just must have been, you know, horrendous for them, too. You know, I, you, you do think about, like, oh, the notoriety. Yeah. I mean, to have a parent who's addicted anyway is awful, but all the notoriety and the, you know, the kind of press and the negative press and anyway. Yeah, I mean, now this... I mean, if you don't know, I mean, this has been on numerous, you know, crime shows. There's um, at least one made-for-TV movie. Right. If not more. I mean, this case has been... Done this still and done. Really, this still really intrigues people. It still really intrigues people. I mean, it's just one of those cases, and I think that I, I think it goes back to the Scarsdale diet was like one of these icons back in the early '80s or late '70s, early '80s. It was like it was like Tab Cola. Scarsdale diet. What were other like Farrah Fawcett? You know, it's just well, one of those things. Yeah. Like when you think about that time, well, in that time it, in New yeah. York and the clubs, and I, I also think it really another reason these stories resonate so much is this kind of like woman scorned. Yes, very much. Uh, you so. know, the Broderick effect. Jilder, jilted we're, lover. We're pointing that. Okay. Yes, <laughs> the jilted lover and. I mean, I think a lot of us can really relate to that. And that is the story of the Scarsdale Diet, Murder and Jean Harris. And this is, thank you again for listening to us for another week at Ivy League Murders. And I just wanted to say a very, very special thank you to my dear friend, Ron Winston, who is the dearest, he's just the greatest. Anyway, thank you so much for your contribution to this, Ron. We are so happy to welcome Tanya and Talia of Crimes and Consequences to our Clovercrest Media Group. Their show is fantastic, and Laura and I are both binging it. And they're both attorneys, Sarah, so they actually they add that extra element of legal knowledge to it. Absolutely. And we are like so. I'm so glad they're on our team at Clovercrest with with Joe. Can we do a shout out to Joe, who's so super fabulous? We couldn't do this without him. He is. You know what he is in my phone? Joe Edit. And Laura (laughs) and I stalk this poor man, and he is the uh, just. They're the best. I I actually start texting him sometimes, like before normal people are awake. I know. I have to. I have to say like. 
like Laura, stop texting Joe <laughs> now. Okay. So thank you. And, and thank you. And definitely check out Talia and Tanya. This is a fabulous podcast. You'll love it. everyone, I'm Talia. And I'm Tanya. And together we're two attorneys that really like to dive into the details of true crime cases, which is why we created Crimes and Consequences, our own true crime podcast. In our podcast, we really want to know the details of a case. So it's really important to us to try to get transcripts and audio or video recordings when we can. In addition, we don't really want to just rehash cases you've always heard. Of course, there's a place for the really famous cases. But it's also interesting to learn about true crime stories that you've never heard before. To give you just a little feel for how our podcast goes, here's a snippet from episode 34 called Closed Casket. Later on that same day at 3.08 p.m., the Smith residence received another phone call from the kidnapper. Here's part of that phone call. 4.58 a.m. Saturday the 1st of June. Okay, Saturday the 1st of June. Became one soul. Became one soul. What does that mean? No questions now, please. Do not kill my daughter, please. I mean, please. love and miss y'all. So if you're like Tanya and I and you want to know the gritty details of the true crime case, Listen to Crimes and Consequences, a hardcore true crime podcast.